This is Leah Freeberg from Fluke Reliability, and thank you for joining us today for this best practices webinar. You probably know Fluke as a test tools provider, and you may also know that we produce some of the industry's favorite reliability tools, from infrared cameras to vibration meters, but you may not know that many of the measurements that our tools collect now flow automatically into EAM systems of record. It happens via a framework that we call Fluke Excelix, thus the name of this series. Our goal at Fluke Reliability is to better connect asset management data and teams with asset management systems to drive connected knowledge. And of course, that knowledge depends greatly on the best practices in condition-based maintenance. So that's why this series of webinars explores reliability maintenance strategies, and that's where we feature speakers from a variety of expert backgrounds. Before the presentation, I have a few housekeeping items to go over. Today's session is being recorded, so the phone lines will be muted to minimize background noise. We'll be answering questions during the session and after the presentation in Q&A. So take a minute now to find the questions tool in the GoToWebinar dashboard. Please feel welcome to submit questions as we go since they're timely, and I will share as many of them as I can for our presenter to answer. And if we have unanswered questions at the end, we will follow up with written answers. If you'd like to receive the slides from today's presentation, please let us know during the survey that will appear at the end of today's session. So don't hang up until the survey appears and you've answered the questions. We are also happy to send you a certificate of attendance after today's webinar. You'll see a question on the survey about getting a certificate, so answer yes and we'll send one to you. A recording of this webinar will be available on the excelix.com website within a day or two. And that's it for housekeeping. So now for the main event. Today, we are so pleased to have with us Suzanne Greenman presenting on future-proofing asset-dependent firms against talent flight. Recent studies predict that the skill shortage is here to stay for manufacturing and related asset-heavy industries. And if that's really true, it means it's time to change our strategies. So let's meet our speaker. Suzanne is a senior asset management consultant and instructor in North America with over 23 years of experience working across several asset management disciplines to implement asset management strategies for manufacturing, utilities, wastewater treatment, airport and maritime transportation assets. Suzanne has had an eclectic career journey that includes HR business partner, asset manager and maintenance manager. And she is the author of Risk-Based Asset Criticality Assessment, a handbook. So again, this skill shortage is such an important topic, and Suzanne is uniquely positioned to address it from both a strategy and a practical tactics perspective. So I feel very lucky to have her with us today. Welcome, Suzanne. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Leah. Thanks for such a fantastic introduction, and also for inviting me to address such a relevant topic. I just want to add something in my own words that I'm passionate about reading, so I read widely. I'm also passionate about writing. I'm capable of saying something funny, but I cannot retell a joke for all the giggling that I do in between. I enjoy stories and jokes. So if you ever meet me in a conference, walk right up to me and tell me a story and you will have my undivided attention. On the professional side, I've been on a very eclectic journey, but the part that is relevant to what I'm going to talk about today are the two years that I spent as an HR business partner, 
the worn out shoes that I have from pounding the pavement looking for work over the years, and of course the bruises from time spent in organizations before I started my own firm. So thank you. I also want to tell you a little bit about uh, Greenman Asset Management Solutions. So we provide asset management advisory and consulting services to organizations with large portfolios of physical assets. Our services include asset management needs analysis, asset management policy and strategy deployment, asset information management, and long-term investment planning. We carry a very specific skill set in that we combine asset management principles with organizational excellence and systems engineering principles to ensure that our approach is holistic and sustainable. We also believe that cultural engagement is necessary for the sustainability of our clients' asset management programs. So we support our asset management deployment with change management and training courses. We also own and operate the Greenman Asset Management Academy, which is an institute that develops and delivers asset management training courses. We publish as well a quarterly newsletter, Sustainable Asset Management Focus. And each quarter, we feature educational and informative articles on asset management, maintenance management, and reliability. This newsletter is freely available and aims to help our clients to improve their asset management practices. So if your business is asset dependent, feel free to visit our website and subscribe to our newsletter. Today, we are going to examine talent risk in asset dependent firms from four angles. We will start by outlining why industry needs skilled labor, and then we will explore the size of the problem, then we will look at what is causing the scarcity of skills and we will close with some strategies that organizations and individual managers can use to better manage this risk and future-proof themselves. So what is it about asset-dependent firms that creates this demand for skilled labor? Firstly, our operational processes are complex. They're often multi-stage, continuous, or batch processes, such as food processing, water treatment, cement manufacturing, and power generation. This means our assets are equally complex. They are infrastructure and equipment with complex components with long life cycles that are capital and energy intensive. If you think about a 200 horsepower rotary compressor or a paper mill or a cement kiln. So we don't just need numbers, we need high quality candidates. Asset dependent firms rely on highly trained and skilled resources to operate, maintain, and troubleshoot equipment. This job also includes the analysis of equipment performance and failure. So the skill sets are not easily and immediately transferable. You can't put, say, a domestic electrician immediately onto a nuclear plant or a process engineer from a cement plant into a food processing plant. And as a follow-on, the resources require significant onboarding to fully contribute. Oftentimes, whether you get skilled persons or new graduates, 
new employees require upwards of six months of onboarding to learn your operational and business processes. So how big is this problem really? Earlier this year, I did a risk profile for a client organization, and we were all very surprised when the availability of skilled labor ranked as an intolerable risk. Talent risk is now at the forefront of executive and board discussions. We are all in a war for talent. It's an all out war. A 2021 study by Deloitte and the Manufacturing Institute found that skills shortages is expanding in the US. The skills gap may leave an estimated 2.1 million positions unfilled and put $1 trillion of manufacturing GDP at risk over the next decade. The Canadian Manufacturers and Exporters 2020 Members Survey reveal that 40% of manufacturers currently face labor shortages, and this is expected to increase to 60% within the next five years. Oil and gas has fared even worse than manufacturing in North America. The situation is so bad that even recruiters are having a hard time finding drilling engineers. A 2020 survey of two major job boards Broadbean Technology and oilandgasjobsearch.com revealed that 36% of those that are out of work will likely change careers after COVID-19 is finished, citing instability in the sector, and they are unlikely to ever return to oil and gas. In another survey, the Global Energy Talent Index surveyed 17,000 industry professionals in 2019. 42% of respondents said that they would even consider a move to the renewable sector in the next three years, creating a further brain drain in the oil and gas industry. So back to our original question, how big is this talent crunch problem again? Well, in the US manufacturing sector, it's a trillion dollar problem. Canadian manufacturers rate the availability of skilled labor in quantity and quality as the number one factor in deciding where to invest. This means that cities and towns that cannot supply skilled labor will not get factories built there. Without skilled workers, a company cannot deliver goods and services in the quantity that will meet market demand. So the market will suffer. Competent workers and management are needed to ensure that goods and services meet the required level of quality. So skilled workers are needed to develop goods and good systems, sorry, to test, assure, and report on quality achievement. Now we know that employee benefits are increasing. So this is due to changes in governmental regulations, but it's also due to other factors in the macro environment, such as economic simple economy is actually increasing employee benefits in addition in a bid to attract and retain talent employees now need to pay better benefits we also know that managing risks and liabilities such as safety and environmental liabilities require skilled workers to identify risks 
develop treatment plans, and to comply with regulations, policy, and standards. So if a company does not have its full complement of the required skills, one or more of these areas will suffer. Based on the shortages of skills, it is taking longer and longer to find talent, so vacancies are going unfilled for a longer period of time. And this holds true for all levels of workers, from skilled, unskilled, and professionals. This is now requiring the increased use of headhunters who charge a percentage of the new employee's annual salary. Kudos to them, that's their job. And I want to touch on this in a little bit more on the next slide, but before I do, let's go to the polls. What I would like to know is how long did it take your company to fill its last skilled role from the date of first posting to the new recruit's first day on the job? Leah, over to you to administer the poll. All right. So for those of you who have been with us before, you know what to do. You should be able to select the best answer for your company. If you are not able to select the answers, uh, stop your maximum, you probably maximized your screen, so reduce it back down. And again, your question today is how long did it take your company to fill its last skilled role? First posting to first day. And you know, if you don't know exactly, that's fine. Give us your best estimate because this is interesting to all of us and it helps Suzanne flavor the rest of her, of her presentation. And I'd love to get about three quarters of the audience voted and we're almost there. So just slide in your answers. If you're not sure, just take your best guess. Is it one to three months, three to six months, six to 12 months, or as Suzanne says, it's been a year and still no joy. All right, I'm going to close the poll now and I'm gonna share the answers. We have 10% saying one to three months. We have 42% saying three to six months, 31% saying six to 12 months, and 17% saying it's been a year and still no joy. Suzanne, what do you think about that? That actually uh, really, really aligns with what we're finding in industry. And just, it's, you know, I look at 31, plus 17, as a matter of fact, from 42 of literally only 10% of people have been really fortunate to fill their positions in one to three months. So the rest of the 90% of us are really, really struggling to find the right quality of talent that we're looking for. So this, this is exactly what we're finding out so that the poll really, really reflects what is happening in industry. Yeah. And I can I can see based on questions. So audience, feel free to start asking questions. I know that Suzanne gave us a lot of data. We're thinking about it, but go ahead and ask your questions as they come up, because that way we can ask them in a timely manner. So right now, Suzanne, I can tell that people are thinking about this very current data that you gave us um, compared to maybe what we thought was happening in industry, right? And it feels like um, if I can summarize some things, is this problem getting worse or is this, are we just more aware of it now? I think it's getting worse. Um, probably about 20 years ago, we had the opportunity to do something about it. We didn't actually do it. Um, like probably when I first started working, and this is this is again going way back, we didn't even have to post a job for very long because by the time employees told 
the people that they knew we would have a slew of resumes to, to really pick from. Nowadays, you have to post and post, and then when you get no joy, you have to engage a recruiter to see if they can pull out some tricks uh, for you to find somebody. Uh, now we have to do all kinds of tricks when, when jobs are posted on LinkedIn, you get all your employees on LinkedIn to also repost it and say what a great place it is to work. Because the reality is that the, the actual skill sets, not just the numbers, the actual skills that we're looking for, they're just not easily available. And there's so much competition for those skills. All right, well, I'm going to let you get back to it because I think you've got some suggestions for us coming up. All right, let's get back into it then. So let's look at this, really reflecting what your what your what your answers to the poll question just said. Let's look at how it's how this talent crunch is increasing talent acquisition time and cost. So Deloitte found in their latest survey pretty much exactly what you guys found. Skill positions are now taking months to fill. So on average, it takes two months to fill skill skilled fill positions for i'm sorry skilled production workers and more than four months for engineers researchers and scientists and even when you manage to find someone again the rules require significant onboarding to be able to contribute fully so in essence what we're seeing is that between the recruitment time and the onboarding time we're looking at about a year almost to have demonstrable competence from the new recruits. So even more reason for organizations to do everything that they can to hold on to the talent that they already have within the firm. So let's talk about why companies are having such difficulties attracting and retaining talent. And I'm going to look at this in two categories. Firstly, there are factors in the macro environment over which the organization has no control and can't fix by themselves, they can only respond to these factors. The next set of factors relate to the organization directly. So factors that are controllable by the organization and they lie either with the organization itself or with individual managers and they make companies an unattractive place to work. So let's look a little bit closer at the factors in the macro environment. The first one is shifting skill sets due to the introduction of advanced technology and automation. Now the company did not cause this. The fourth industrial revolution is one thing that is changing the requirements for almost all industrial jobs. As a matter of fact, this started even before Industry 4.0. One of my first major projects was to upgrade the massive control boards that we used to have in the cement plant to PLCs and HMIs. Within a couple of years, the instrument technicians that did not want to learn how to troubleshoot PLCs, they left one by one. I'm also old enough to have witnessed the influx of VFDs and soft starts into industry requiring electricians to be computer literate. Again, the same thing happened. Electricians that believed that the computer was a young people thing, they also quietly retired. And then we have the gross misalignment between academia and industry, where in many cases, academia has not yet caught up to industry. So what is being taught does not adequately prepare the graduate 
for industrial work. And there are exceptions to this. People who have gone through internships and co-op programs are quite fortunate in this regard. There's also the misperception of what manufacturing jobs really are. And this occurs in a couple of ways. So first of all, there's just the plain lack of awareness of the various types of industrial jobs and what persons in these roles do. So people who are looking to decide their career have no idea that these jobs exist and what they are all about. There's also the perception that some jobs are dirty. About 10 years ago, I met a company that repaired electrostatic precipitators and dust collectors, and they just simply could not find workers, although that's really a dirty place to be. But I worked in a cement um, manufacturing plant for many years, well, several cement plants, and people just thought that we were covered in dust from morning till night. Not true. Then we have the retirement of baby boomers who are not being replaced fast enough. This is also happening where baby boomers are owners of companies. They are retiring with no active successors, so their businesses are being sold or shuttered. So let's say that we managed to get the talent in the door. What is actually causing it to flee? So first of all, companies and industries are not generating enough new talent. Many companies have cut their apprenticeship and internship programs and are relying on open market to source talent. This isn't working really well in this day and age. It probably worked really well, again, 20, 30 years ago, but not now. Employee development has also been cut in many companies, and this has been defaulted to colleges and to individual employees. Again, a strategy that is not working very well for companies. We also have companies that are just not set up properly and not well run. So lack of, there's a lack of processes and systems. Work is not well defined. There is insufficient governance and unclear rules. And then we have the places that the work environment is just plain hostile and the culture is just difficult to maneuver. So people are checking out mentally and emotionally. And I saw a, a little bit of statistic yesterday again that said 50% of workers, actually upwards of 50% of workers have checked out mentally and emotionally and will leave the job even for a slightly better financial offer. So it doesn't have to be anything big to get people out the door. This also means that your workers are ignoring risks because they are disengaged. We also have a management team culture that lords over the organization or one that is so far removed from the organization that it does not actively engage the employees and relate with the employees. And so let's look at this with a little different lens. So we've dealt with why people are leaving companies. What about their individual managers? So you know the saying that people don't leave companies, they leave bad managers? Well, it's only part true. The part that is not true is that there is never one incompetent manager when the environment goes toxic. There are at least four. So let's start with the individual manager. And instead of calling him or her a bad manager, 
let's call them an incompetent manager and leader. And then we have the manager's boss who is complicit in the bad behavior or the incompetence and is a willing conspirator to the incompetent manager's behavior. And then there's also an HR manager who should be monitoring the tone of the organization, but instead enables management behaviors. And finally, a CEO at the heart of it all, because they are vested with the power to install competent management, but oftentimes they do not. So you see what really looks like one bad manager is really a conglomerate, conglomerate of persons with poor leadership and managerial skills displaying equally poor behaviors. So what are some traits of leadership and managerial incompetence that are turning people off in organizations? And I'm going to give you six of them. The first one is a lack of empathy and authenticity. A few years ago, I worked for a company that traditionally the shop floor people got to leave the plant at noon for their annual Christmas party. This particular year, we had a new VP that started in July and he immediately set about to put an end to this nonsense. The unionized team retaliated by threatening to down tools and not work any overtime in the upcoming shutdown. This would have been disastrous for us. In the end, he had to walk back the decision. Empathy is not feeling sorry for people. It is understanding where they're coming from. Without empathy, leaders cannot support their people. And without authenticity, they cannot relate to them. Role overreaching is when leaders try to do their employees' jobs. And there are two reasons for this. The main one is insecurity on the part of the leader, and the other one is a lack of confidence in the employee's abilities. Oftentimes, people who have been promoted refuse to relinquish their old roles, frustrating the incumbent and creating confusion within the organization. Role overreaching is usually followed by its first cousin, micromanaging, and we all know how unpleasant that is. Leadership skills include the ability to build trust, inspire confidence, communicate clearly, empathy that we spoke about before, and also the ability to think clearly. So leaders need to communicate how team deliverables fit into the organization's value chain. Some of these look like skills that one has to be born with, but they can all be learned and both the organizations and leaders have to invest in them. Sound leadership or without sound leadership, I can tell you that teams will be set adrift in a sea of confusion and frustration. Leadership skills are important, but so are management skills. Someone needs to plan and direct the operations of the team. The leader of the team is responsible for structuring the team and its performance and is accountable for all of the deliverables. The leader is also responsible for ensuring that appropriate business processes are in place to deliver required outcomes. And this is where a lot of the breakdown occurs. We also have 
unfair play and unethical behavior, and these are related to character. Remember how we said that everything above that we spoke about for leadership can be learned? Well, character traits are developed very early in childhood and are difficult to change. So please bear this in mind as you bring up the new generation. Having a leader that engages in unethical behavior, that demands it, or that encourages it in the team is a massive turnoff. An equally negative trait is unfair play. This includes blatant favoritism, nepotism, deceit, and other undesirable or antisocial traits. In one of my maintenance manager's role, maintenance manager roles, my boss dipped regularly into the maintenance budget for his pet projects and also allowed his other direct reports to do so. But then I was the only one that was grilled by finance for variance. He would then actively deny that anyone else was spending out of the budget. Needless to say, I quit that job after two months. Finally, we have too many persons in roles that do not know what they are supposed to do, what they are supposed to deliver to the next person, and what they are supposed to receive from the previous person in the chain. This leads to team dysfunction, it leads to underperformance and increased risks. But I don't want you to feel disheartened or contrary. I want to inspire you today that as an individual manager, you can do something to manage this risk. As an organization, you can do something also to manage this risk. But before we go on, let's go to the second poll. And what I'm curious to know is how many companies have started to mitigate talent risk as a focus area? Leah, over to you. Very good. And I know that you've given the audience so much to think about. So now, audience, it's your chance to type back at us. So choose the best answer that works for your situation. Is your company actively mitigating talent risk? Is it no, not yet, or not sure, or it's come up, or yes, we are actively working on it? Again, give it your best option here. This is again to flavor the overall conversation. We'd love to get, you know, 75% of you to answer the question of is your company actively mitigating talent risk based on everything that Suzanne has talked about thus far. I'm going to give it about five, ten more seconds, give it your best shot here, and then we're going to share the answers. All right. One, two, three, and I'm going to close and share the poll. Suzanne, we have 25% saying no, they are not yet actively mitigating the risk. 31% are not sure. 25% say it has come up and 18% say yes. Now, what do you make of these? I think that is about the size, you know, the size of the problem, um, mm. really. Um, and as we, the, the unfortunate thing is that uh, anything that you do now is no longer a proactive solution. Anything yeah. that you do now, you're actually probably 20 years behind the, the eight ball. So that is what I actually was expecting. That That's what we're seeing, that we're really trying our best to get the word out, to get companies to start 
to look at this actively and to start to work at this as a focus area, not, you know, along with all the other things that are happening in the company. So thank you so much for, for your answers. Thank you for, for your honesty. It actually does exactly reflect uh, what we think is happening yeah. out there in industry. Yeah. Now we have a lot of questions that have come in. However, I think you may be addressing some of them. So I'm just going to ping you a couple right now. Okay. Uh, and again, if you are going to answer these as well, then we'll hold. Um, but I have a question here. Is looking to diversify present employees, does that mean that you're, you should concentrate on appealing to workers who might feel they won't be considered? You've talked about how the skill set is so specific, right? And how we may be in a situation to appeal to a broader set. So does that mean that we need to specifically tell people perhaps in plant that no, you should apply for a job? How do you diversify? And and, and you know what? I am actually gonna touch on this a little bit, but the 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 real answer to that is if we can get more people engaged and people not feeling that they're not a part of it, that's the first step. Uh, if we can create the talent pipeline within the organization by helping people to further prepare themselves, that is a good thing. And you know what, we see a lot of times jobs are advertised internally as a first step to being advertised externally. And even where internal folks apply they're, they're just not suitable for the role because nobody explained to them what they needed to do to prepare themselves for, for the role. So it's very important and that is a key function of your actual line manager, if you're a line manager, to help people to understand what they need to do to prepare themselves for the future as well. Okay. Again, I'm going to hold most of these questions because I think you're going to be addressing a lot of this and then I will use the Q&A time at the end if we haven't covered off on it. All right. All right. So let's see. What can organizations do? And I'm going to give you eight tips that you can take back to your organizations. So let's look at these in a little bit more um, detail. So organizations need to build capability strategically by first of all, investing in competence development through a competence framework. So we need a framework to understand what skill sets we need within the organization and how we're gonna get people there. We also need to encourage and incentivize employees. This is uh, exactly what we were talking about, Leah, to prepare themselves for better roles. Oftentimes roles are posted and internal candidates do not qualify for these roles because they are not prepared, but they also do not know how to prepare themselves for the role, uh, except when they see somebody from outside come in to get the job. Employees need mentorship and coaching, okay? Uh, employees are entrusted to you by the organization. They need mentors, and it doesn't always mean that you have to be the mentor or you have to be the coach. What you need to be doing is, is seeing that that is happening from an organizational perspective. And because there will always be turnover, key roles should be targeted for succession planning. This week, CNN Business outlined that there are growing concerns on Wall Street over the fact that CEO Elon Musk 
does not have a clear successor for his organization. And by the way, this was identified by Iconic Tour in 2017. So it's not even a new issue for Mr. Musk. Asset-dependent firms need to strategically manage their talent pipeline. And let's talk about this. So we can strategically use retiring persons, use them for training, keep them on hand to onboard new employees. Of course, it will cost the organization some more, but this is where you have to measure the cost of mitigating the risk against what it will cost you in damage control when the risk does materialize. There's also a lot of knowledge in your organization. Some folks acquired it from within the company, others came with it from outside. Either way, ex the more experienced folks can teach others. About 15 years ago, I worked in Pennsylvania for a company that was facing a crucial talent crunch, again, to show you that this issue is not new. And there I implemented technical information sessions where once per week, one of our senior electrical engineers would teach a one-hour class on something. It became so popular that the mechanical design teams and the process teams also started to attend. My point is that there is already a lot of knowledge in your company, and if you formalize it, you may be able to document it, and then the persons that are delivering these training courses can be rewarded for their efforts. Industry and academia are different players in the same game, and they need to work collaboratively to create this talent pipeline. Some obvious ways are to revisit the apprenticeship and internship programs in some way. But one of the reasons that they went away was due to cost. So we're not looking at bringing it back wholesale as it was, but in some way. There are also other ways to participate. In fact, I think about it like this. Industry should become the guardian of academia. Skilled talent can volunteer as guest lecturers to participate in reviewing course syllabi and objectives or even to open up our facilities to plan tours. Another avenue is through bonded scholarships and other form of academic sponsorships. So I know that many companies are already doing this, but I wanted to mention that we may now need to extend the relationship beyond the tertiary level all the way to the secondary level as well. We also need to encourage cross-fertilization. There is a lot of in-sector training, conferences, and hiring. Cement people attend cement conferences and manufacturing folks attend manufacturing conferences. However, because talent can be found in any sector, then folks need to train with folks from outside of their industry. They need to probably attend conferences by discipline so that they can benefit from cross-sector learning. And we also need to consider candidates from other industry knowing that onboarding will be needed. With a talent crunch, companies need to reprioritize and focus on core services and then establish strategic partners for non-core services so that skills can be developed in other organizations to support them. Companies need now more than ever to invest in good information systems and processes to preserve business know-how and to manage risks when employees move on. 
asset dependent firms need to create more paths for people to be successful without necessarily climbing the corporate ladder. Many asset dependent firms have very, very rigid promotional paths. So moving up usually requires one to move into people leadership. And we know that some folks don't actually want this. What they want is recognition for their expertise and financial promotions. Sometimes the answer is lateral movement to learn and grow in another department. Sometimes it may be opportunities to attend conferences and trade shows or specialized seminars and courses. And employees could be incentivized through the reward and recognition program to take advantage of these programs. It could also be special projects and assignment to encourage creativity and innovation. Either way, I tell you, the company always benefits from these things that are happening. Future-proofing the organization requires that management engages in leadership development to demonstrate commitment through accountability. Leadership and managerial competencies are different from your technical competencies, so management needs both training and coaching, especially if they've been promoted from the technical or specialized tracks within the organization. Train leaders at all levels of the organization, and we ever so often forget about the executives, but they need training too. Management also needs to be held accountable for their behavior and for that of their team because they enable the behaviors of the individuals in their team. It is time to build a culture of engagement. To build an engaged culture, management must therefore again be held accountable, not only for their commitment, but for the levels of engagement and for aligning the reward systems within the organizations to make sure that we are rewarding the right behaviors. Culture is enabled by leadership behaviors so exactly how the leaders behave, that is the culture of the organizations. It is also enabled by storytelling, so we need to start telling the right stories in the organization. Organizational culture is also sustained through rewards and recognition. And rewards and recognition includes promotion, it also includes proximity to seats of power. So as you are attaching persons to yourself as leaders or to other leaders within the organization, make sure that you know that that is seen as a form of reward and recognition. If you want the right behaviors in the organization, tell stories about the right behaviors. So if you want stories about sustainable behaviors, if you want stories about troubleshooting, or if you want stories, on the other hand, about firefighting, then you tell the stories that you want. We also need to revamp and simplify our hiring practices. Some of our hiring processes are way too complicated. I read horror stories every day, and I've experienced a few myself. Our interview processes are complicated, and they're so complicated because we're trying to cover the inconsistent ability 
of hiring managers and HR personnel to spot great talent. So what we need to do instead is to train the hiring managers and HR personnel to be able to spot capacity and potential. Have you ever been asked to fill up a form with the exact same information that is on your resume? Are you tired of answering what are your strengths and weaknesses? I've read of someone recently relating how they have to do eight different interviews for the same role. It is no wonder that candidates are ghosting recruiters and they're ghosting companies as well. And then we have to consider whether our compensation methods are outdated. <clears throat> are they reflective of what today's candidates are asking for? More vacation over higher salary, more promotion, more role diversity, mental health security, hybrid work arrangements, shorter work weeks, and diversity of personnel in the firms. I would say that our offer letters of today and of the future need to look different than the ones of yesterday. Now, what can individual managers do? The first thing is to demonstrate positive values personally. Regardless of what is happening in the industry, you personally demonstrate these positive values. People do not like to be bullied. They do not like to be treated unfairly or in a condescending manner or made to participate in unethical activities. Engagement begins with you. Emails and handing out jobs at 7 a.m. is not engagement. People need to feel a part of the team and a part of the organization. You need as a leader to be speaking with your people regularly, all the time, and about things that are not work-related as well. So people need to feel that they are respected and that their creativity and input is valued. So engagement must happen at the individual level. You must get to know the individual on your team. The best thing that you can give of yourself is you and your time as a leader. You must make time for people. Employees need coaching, again, to excel in their roles. Mentorship is about wisdom. So whether or not there is a formal mentorship program in place, you may have young professionals or other people who are changing roles or new to the organization that qualify to be mentored. Set your ego aside when hiring because you may need to hire someone with a different personality than yourself. You may also find yourself hiring somebody that is more talented and brighter than you are. Don't be intimidated. This is where you will excel as a manager when you spot and bring great talent into the organization. You can't always prioritize cultural fit because you may find a great teammate, but not necessarily a great employee. Prioritize competence, attitude, and character. When you hire someone, you pay them to give you their best advice. It may not agree with your current way of doing things or with your personal opinion, but that is what you pay them for, their best advice. Understand your role. 
if you're confident in your role, you will not allow yourself to mushroom into your employees' roles. This includes micromanaging employees, wordsmithing, nitpicking, and other distasteful behaviors. And finally, people leadership is not for everyone. Examine yourself honestly and decide. If you take it on, invest in your own development. Prepare yourself. It requires different skill sets than your technical skills. And finally, you should be able to answer this question. When I show up at, at work as a leader, am I someone that I would want to work for? Ladies and gentlemen, we have come to the end of my presentation. I trust that you were able to take away even one nugget. And if you were, Fluke and I would love to hear from you on LinkedIn or on Twitter what you were able to take away. I would now like to open the floor up for questions. Leah? Thank you, Suzanne. Um, and folks, you are, of course, welcome to follow up with Suzanne directly using the contact information on screen. And there is still time for you to answer to post questions in the questions tool. So go ahead and type those in now. I'm going to start with the questions that have already come in. Um, I think this one is probably reflective of what many people are thinking, Suzanne. So I'm just going to read it out to you. Okay. So we are already facing multiple challenges every day. A commitment like this takes time, time to discuss, time to commit, time to strategize, and most of all, committing people when we're already shorthanded. Where does this fit with all the other things I'm juggling? Reducing costs, increasing uptime, retiring workers, technology, et cetera. Where does it fit? I would mm -hmm. say at the very, very top of your pile. Because if we start to lose our workers, there might not be any company, there might not be any team to consider doing all the other things. Now, that is not to say that it is not difficult. What, what it is, what I'm trying to say is that at the end of it, we have to be able to prioritize our employees. We have, and it's not, this is also not saying that you individually as a manager have to do everything to prepare your 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 employees you know there is a lot of onus that sits on the employees themselves however there is the aspects of showing them showing them the way showing them what is required of the role there is the aspects of setting up proper business processes so that people can consistently follow what is required of the leadership what is required of them, sorry, by the leadership of the organization. There is the things that actually cost nothing, does not take anything from anybody, no time, no money, that is demonstrating good behaviors within the organization. And you're not supposed to be alone in this. This really should be an organizational effort. It should be a partnership with, with the employees, but engagement helps every other part of your job to be better. So engagement with the workforce will help you to manage risks, it will help you to manage costs, it will help you to get your asset performance up if you're able to engage the workforce. In asset management, we say that assets and systems don't do asset management, it's people that do asset management. 
Exactly, which is actually a fantastic segue to another question about the uh, CMRP certification. Is that something, is that an example, especially for this audience, that you would recommend as a way to address the skill shortage? So, you know, where I like to start with people rather than <clears throat> giving recommendations, I like to get with the individual to understand what is it that you want for yourself. So if you are interested in maintenance management and reliability management and the science that goes along with being able to manage a maintenance and reliability program, then the CMRP is a good fit for you. The CMRP not only helps to showcase, and it's, it's an exam-based uh, certification, so what it does, it actually builds on the skill sets that you already have. So you actually have to have that knowledge and that experience to be able to pass that exam. So what it does for you is that it says, it validates your experience and also your knowledge. What it does for the organization is that it says that you are a person that can bring back the systematic thinking to the organization. So does it directly address the skills shortage? <clears throat> uh, maybe not but it puts you and your organization in a better light and better able to manage some of the other risks that you face as an organization the the thing that i often worry about with certifications and lord knows i have i have a lot of them you know probably more than i should but i worry that people pursue certifications without actually having an end goal in mind and and that is one thing that you have to guard yourself against so if you if you pursue certifications pursue it uh in the line of what your end goal is and what your dream is for yourself as a professional great answer um we have some people by the way saying uh they agree with the suggestion to hire uh, retired people to help with the training. They really like that suggestion. Okay. Um, is there sort of a, can you extend on that? Are there more ways that you can reach outside the organization to help with all of this change, with to help with the recruitment, help with the training, et cetera? So within the organization, the organization itself must must have a framework because if you don't have a framework for doing this, then you're gonna be running around just trying trying to do this. So you must know where the retirees fit in or where other people fit in. You know, as as workforce uh, becomes more and more flexible, part of things that people will be doing is working for multiple organizations, and organizations now have to get comfortable with those kinds of arrangements. What I would say is that if there are retirees, not necessarily from your company, but just retirees in the industry in general, then you can always bring them back to do um, coaching, especially if you have new employees, you have new engineers, you have new technical staff who are either new to the industry or fresh out of school, then the retirees would be a good fit to, to bring them on board, spend a year with them and, and bring them up to speed. Um, with respect to the training, you really do have to have as well, you know, kind of, 
again, coming out of your competence framework, like a multi-year training plan, and then you will be able to see what areas you're trying to train people in and where you have the skill set. Do you have those skills inside the organization or people who have recently retired? So you build the framework inside the organization so that you own the processes and then you co-opt the resources back into the organization as needed to support your program that you've built inside. Fabulous. Okay, I have a couple of questions about what does good look like? I'll read you this question. While manufacturing is heavily focused on transformation and industry 4.0 regarding to assets, there's a lack of vision for the people and future work environment side, like you've been saying. Is there anyone out there doing this well that we could reference? Well, that's a good question. The actual name of a company, um, I can't give you, but there are companies who have taken the strategic approach. And if you take, for example, let's say the approach I like to, to propose to companies is to have your long-term asset management approach baked into your organization. Because if you have your long-term asset management approach baked in and you build your asset management system, then that will determine the kind of information and how you want to treat with, with asset information. So that means then that you will now have a way to manage your asset information. And from that will, will be determined your strategy that you're gonna be working with, what systems you're gonna be using, what kind of technology you're gonna be bringing on board and so on. Because it's very, very tempting to run out and start to buy a lot of shiny things uh, because it's the cutting edge way to, to do things, you know. But how does this support the goals of the organization? And unless you have your, your asset management strategy and approach that is baked in and aligned with your organizational goals and your strategic direction, then the rest of the things that you're doing will be very disconnected if you don't have that in place. Mm -hmm. Okay, I've got one more, and it's a little bit of a zinger, but I, I think you're ready for it. So, um, we have some people writing in from small companies, some people writing in from, from larger organizations, right? Yes. And in both cases, the question is, what if I'm having trouble making change above me, right? What if, what if I can't get the HR policies changed? What if I'm having issues either with my own management or corporate management? What do I do? Right. It's always a difficult thing to try to manage up in the organization. That, that's the reality. And, and sometimes I, I'm going to tell you, I've, I've come to, I've been down that road to the point that it was easier to leave the organization than try to manage up because um, that would just set you on a path of, of, of conflict and probably career assassination to, to try to do that because sometimes um, that level of the organization is, is, is so locked off. And I really hope that you know, some senior leaders are, are listening and hearing how, how terrified sometimes their own people are of broaching certain um, topics with them. That being said, the, the, the way that I speak to senior leaders whenever, whenever I need to engage on very difficult issues is that I come at it from the perspective of risk. And I try my best to calculate, well, if we don't have this in place, 
and this risk materializes, then what actually does happen? So if we don't have our people trained, then what is gonna happen is that we may have this particular safety infraction, which may bring with it some government fines of this amount, then we will also have reputation issues and, and try as best as you can to quantify what the company loses by not actually addressing that particular risk. And once you're able to, to do that, then it removes the, <clears throat> the, the personal or, or emotional content from it and it brings you into a space that you are looking at risk. And this could be risk whether you're talking about people, whether you're talking about the equipment, whether you're talking about even your management systems. So what you want to do is you want to focus the, the discussion and the conversation about how you can demonstrate that something is a risk and how it can be treated and what the treatment would actually resolve. Mm -hmm that 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 largely would be my approach because i you know i'm yet to find a ceo or a cfo that does not sit up and listen you know when it is pointed out that we could lose x amount of money um if we don't do this simple thing mm -hmm. that is actually a great segue to our next point if you will fall uh, forward to the next slide our next webinar on july 7th is with nicole rochelle and she is a business intelligence tools guru like Power BI or Tableau. And what she has been doing at her company, Monogram Foods, is visualizing all of this data, like you were just showing, what is the cost to business? So for example, she has pulled all of the reliability data from their CMMS into counterposition with the other corporate um, metrics so that there's this larger picture and it has really bullet trained forward the reliability program because the awareness was there. Same thing for these factors you were just talking about, right, with the talent shortage and the risk and how is that costing us. So I want to encourage everyone to attend Nicole's presentation on the 7th because she's going to do a very practical approach, even for people who aren't Power BI wizards or don't have that relationship with their IT department, to show you what's possible so that you can then start moving that forward because that's really helped the reliability team at Monogram Foods. And then if you'll forward one more time, Suzanne. After I close the webinar today, a survey will pop up. So wait a minute after the session closes, there'll be a pause, the survey link will appear. We'd really appreciate your answers. It gives us feedback on today's session, what you'd like to see in the future. And of course, then you'll get the slides from today and a certificate of attendance. The recording of today's session will be on excelx.com within a day or two. I know I'm gonna go back and listen because there was a lot of information. And unfortunately, that's it for today because this was fantastic. Thank you so much, Suzanne. So pertinent, so smart, so helpful. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was a wonderful opportunity. And thank you to the audience for the tremendous amount of, of feedback and questions. It's, it was a lot more questions that I, than I anticipated. So I'm very, <laughs> very, very happy with the interactions. Thank you so much. Very good. And audience, if we didn't get to your questions, we will respond to you afterward. So that's it for today. Thank you everyone for joining us. Have a great rest of your day and we'll see you next time.